0: The K Pup Podcast is sponsored by T Row Price. Are you looking to learn a thing or two about getting your finances in order, saving, and investing? Check out The Confident Wallet, a personal finance podcast series by T Row Price and the Washington Post Brand Studio. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hey everyone, this is Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to K Up. Ty Hall is the author of Lunchbox Chronicles, Raising a Conscious Black Boy in America about guiding and teaching her 11-year-old son about life. Margaret Capehart is a retired nurse and my mom. These two black women came together to have an intergenerational conversation about raising black boys 40 years apart. Things have changed but so much remains the same. Hear what they have to say about their fears of the police, their own experiences with racism, and how they taught their sons how to deal with it. What you're about to hear was one of the most nerve-wracking interviews I've ever done. One where a simple question brought my mom to tears. This is a very special episode of the podcast, an intergenerational discussion between two moms raising black sons. One son is 11 years old, the other's son is 50. One is named Ty Hall, the mother of Cordell, the other is Margaret Capehart, the mother of Jonathan. Me. This is going to be either really great for the listener or a personal disaster for me, or both. <laughs> but welcome to K-pop. Welcome to the podcast.
2: Good morning. Thanks. Good morning. <laughs> oh, so. Ooh.
1: <laughs> All right. So to kick this conversation off, it'd be great for everyone to hear, starting with Ty and then, and then my mom, just quickly: who are you? Where were you born? Where did you grow up? W- what's your profession?
0: Oh, my name is Ty Hall. I grew up in uh, Capitol Heights, Maryland. Um, we lived uh, in Capitol Heights and then moved to Mitchellville, Bowie area. Um, I went to college and started gallivanting around the world, figuring out what I wanted to do in my life. It was one of the scariest things ever, like, 18 years old, all right, and go. What do you want to do for the rest of your life? And I had no idea. I changed my major eight times, dropped out of college three times. I, I did go back every time. I massed more than <laughs> a semester's worth of tuition and parking tickets. Um, I got. A, I have two bachelors in neuromolecular biomechanics and, and abnormal psychology and I'm now an international massage therapist.
2: Oh, wow. <laughs> what an exciting life you had.
0: <laughs> yeah, it took some time figuring out what it is that I wanted to do and finding my purpose outside of what the world wanted me to do versus what is Taiwan.
2: Well, my name is Margaret Capehart. I was born in Severn, North Carolina, a little small town. We have a railroad train that goes through no stoplight, like one post office, no grocery stores, no... Anymore. Um, anymore. Um, no cleaners. Shopping, we go to Virginia. I graduated from Willis-Hare High School in uh, Pellington, North Carolina. And I went to nursing school in Durham, North Carolina. And I also graduated from nursing school and, uh, and got married. And uh, had a wonderful son. <laughs> But sadly, his father passed away when he was four months old. So um, after that, I, when he got a little older, about, I guess, around six years old, I went back to school and got a bachelor's in special ed and also a master's in uh, audiology and communications. And now I never worked in either of those fields. Really? (laughs) I never taught and I never used my... uh, master's uh, program, but I continued in nursing. I realized I really did like nursing, so I retired. That was one of my eight majors, (laughs) (laughs) was nursing. Uh, So I retired from nursing in um, 07. Okay. And I have done traveling like you did when you were younger. I started doing my traveling after I retired. I did a 31-day cruise uh, Nice from Singapore to Cape Town, South Africa. Visited the Taj Mahal. And then, um, what else did I do?
1: <laughs> there was the Mediterranean cruise. Oh, yeah, there was so the was Caribbean the medi- cruise. the Mediterranean cruise. So, one thing, Ty, you, you, left, you left out is that, and this is the reason why we met, is because you're the author of a book. I'm um, now. The hashtag is there. So, do you say the hashtag or you just say lunchbox? Okay. Oh no,
0: I, I just say um, lunchbox, lunchbox chronicles. chronicles. So it's yeah.
1: lunchbox chronicles, raising a conscious black boy in America. And as I said before, um, it's your book that um, is how we how we met. And last night when I was talking with my mom, she without having seen your book yet, she said. Something to the effect and you—I know you will correct me if I'm wrong, Mother. Uh, you said something like it was easier raising me when I was growing up than it would be today. Is that what you yeah, said, Mom? Yeah. Why yeah. do you
2: say? Why do you think that? Uh, because when you were a kid, we—you had to be careful of the police, but you didn't worry too much about the police shooting you. And uh, but today it's. It's really hard, I think, for parents yes, to raise a son. You know, he, the, son, he doesn't have, the child doesn't have, really have to be doing anything to be arrested and cuffed and either shot. But when um, Todd was growing up, I really didn't worry about that too much. But I did worry about uh, racism, and I did talk to him about that. And uh, when he went to an all-white school, when we moved to Plainfield, North Plainfield, I asked him, uh, did anyone call you any names? And he said, no. I said, okay, everything's okay. And he really, I don't know whether he had any problems or not, but <laughs> if he did, he never <coughs> told me about it. But that was, um, you know, that, that was my only worry uh, about schooling, that was my worry. But i would still worried about the police because I told him I'm not going to a jail to pick you up and I'm not going to the principal's office <laughs> to get you. So, so don't try to do anything to make me have to come get you.
0: I think a lot of those issues are still relevant, but they've Mm -hmm. become compounded over the years as society has continued to change. Mm -hmm. And what I speak of, and I mentioned it a few times in the book, is that um, I think we've entered into a civil war, Mm -hmm. but it's an unspoken of civil war. Um, Just... Last week, uh, a gentleman was killed on my street. Um, And I I don't live on a a main street or anything like that. It was just like I live in Baltimore City. Um, I actually live in a very nice neighborhood. Baltimore is one of those few areas, though, where the socioeconomic disparity is very visible when you look at it. I'm like, y'all didn't put too much thought into this architecture. You'll have half million dollar historic homes right here. And then, or like, maybe a park in the middle. And then the very same street, you have, you know, projects and dilapidated houses. Um, and the two coexist. And But I live in a, a decent side of the city. And I opened up the front door and I came outside and I was like, whoa. And, like, there was choppers flying around and then... Like we, the street that we live on was sectioned off. Like I had to go out the back and around like three streets just to get out my neighborhood. Um, and the cops had um, shot and killed a, a gentleman. Now, I, 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 when I did find out the story, there's no way that you can justify what he had done wrong. Like wrong is wrong. But you can't be the judge and the jury. You know, if you make a mistake and you do wrong, that is why we have the trial, set, the system we have in place that it should go to trial. He didn't even make it there. The cops mm. shot to kill
2: yeah, that's why I, I really didn't. were it, it really wasn't that bad when when uh, what fifty years ago, but the racism was there, and you knew, you knew the, the difference between the races, but as far as the police being cruel, like they are today. Now, when did you said,
0: have that conversation with Jonathan, as far as racism was concerned? If you could, it doesn't have to be like you know spot on, but around how old was he?
2: I, I think it was around twelve. But I think it was when he went to and I think the school in North Plainfield was all white.
1: Yeah. But it was pro- probably the the big conversation happened in Hazlitt. Oh in Hazlitt. When yeah. when one of my friends dropped the N bomb and oh. you told me if anyone you if anyone uses that you tell me right away and I came running in and you went outside, and you, you know, wagged your finger and yelling at them. <laughs> they all dispersed. But then, what happened was this most incredible com- conversation that I have not forgotten in now forty-something years, where my mom said to me, "Listen," and you've heard her call me Todd. That is my middle name. Yeah, She's always name. called me that since, <laughs> since birth. But she said to me, "Listen." You and Skip, this was my next door neighbor and also my best friend. She said, "You and Skip right now are even." She had her hands up, and placed even. But as you get older, Skip will be like more equal than you. And was Skip you not have, black? Right, Skip was white. We were He's in an right. in yeah. all majority mm-hmm. uh, white town, and she she's telling me this, and it's as if. That's why your Santa Claus story Mm -hmm. in your book resonated. Because that was my mom basically telling me Santa Claus doesn't exist. And I was screaming at the top of my lungs, tears raining down my face as I said, You're lying. You are lying. Why are you saying this to me? Why would you say that to me? And that to me was like the big racial conversation. That we had, and she just yeah. looked at me. And said, I know, baby, I know, I know, <laughs> yeah. but it, it is the truth. And for the
2: longest time,
1: uh, I was like, she lied.
0: I think my son was six years old when I had to have that conversation.
2: Uh huh. And I also uh, also let uh, let Todd know that his brain was the same as a white kid's brain. Yes, ma'am. The white kid is no is not smarter than he is because the white kid has. Happens to be white, and he is black. You know, I told him don't let anyone think that he is less. His brain is less than, right? You know, and and um, I I thought that was I had to let him know that they both had the same brain and could learn. And I can just see well. that
0: being um. I don't want to call it so traumatic, but you know, taking that veil off of and. Uh, piercing the innocence of a child mm-hmm. and I felt that every single time we had to have one of those tough conversations with my son you know they uh, children embody the uh, essence of innocence and to remove that and like show them what the real world looks like this is the, what you are operating in um, is hard to do as a parent yeah and that yeah. hasn't changed. It hasn't, it hasn't <laughs> changed. It hasn't you know,
1: changed. and speaking in Baltimore, when the the Freddie Gray disturbances were were happening, mm-hmm. I hesitate to call them riots because it makes it seem like the entirety of Baltimore was up in in flames Uproar. and people. But it, wasn't it was a small there. section. Um, but Lester Holt of NBC Nightly News was down in Baltimore, and he interviewed this young mother on on a, on a stoop. And she said something that's so powerful that I've used it in several, in several pieces. And I want to get both of uh, you to react to this. She says, it really makes me want to cry because you want your child to be able to walk outside and feel safe and feel like they're important and that they're worthy. And when they are afraid of the very people that are supposed to protect them, what do you do? How do you tell your child how to behave when they're not doing anything
2: wrong in the first place? Mm. Yeah, that's... That, that's, <laughs> that's a hard question, a hard thing to answer, I think, because with, with that, a, a child will all, you, ha- you have to have a strong parent to let the child know that the child is loved because a lot of kids don't feel like they are loved and they feel like there's no safety in the home and there's no safety on the street. But I think a parent really has to let that child know that he or she is loved. And and you do caution them about being, you know, going out on the street, you know, how to respect the police mm-hmm. and uh, how to respect, you know, other people. But um, I, I think it really has to come from inside the home. Absolutely. The solutions
0: don't exist outside mm-hmm. the home, but right. um, starting in the general, the conversations reside within the home and then reinforcing um, and giving solutions and answers of what parents can pull on to supplement those conversations of how do I tell my child you're perfect, but the world we live in is not. And um, I, I I think that you can't have any cut cards with your child. It is what it is. <clears throat> this is the world that we live in. Unfortunately, even if you are being amazing and wonderful and spectacular as you are, you can still be pulled up and you know pressed out based upon the color of your skin. And um, this is how you have to handle it. And you have to inform them how to react. Um, it's very hard that to, to tell your child that you have freedom of speech but not freedom of action. And if you choose to take that route of having freedom of action, these are the potential consequences that are associated with it.
1: You have, um, I was trying to find it in in the book, to to your very point here, when you're talking with your son, Cordell, this dichotomy of being strong and being confident in yourself and how you interact with people, but then when the police are involved— how knowing right. how to switch yeah,
2: that's a different story right. to go completely
1: yeah. different
0: like you have to uh, mute your your power how do I tell my son that he can be anything he wants to be when he grows up except a strong black man when that's the one mm-hmm. thing I'm trying to raise is a strong black man
1: so what did you do um or how are you doing because he's just 11
0: right right um I honestly I go to the grassroots of and I think there's a psychology behind a lot of this and this isn't proven and I would love to have uh, Tamron here to have the conspiracy theories but my theory <laughs> and I speak hall. on it uh-huh. that Tamron Hall is high hall Oh, the K-Fart show <laughs>
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: but I would love to have um, that to, to delve into the psychology behind power um, because there's always a deeper meaning of why something happens and I speak on this in a story that happened in the book and I was dating a gentleman he was an SPO a special police officer and um, he was kind of a you know. Quirky fellow, and uh, you know, as I was getting to know him, I learned about his pedigree and you know him growing up, and saw his yearbooks, and he was he was never the cool kid ever, Mm -hmm. which is fine, I don't care, but um, that that speaks volumes later in how someone's translate when they never had power to when they get just a little bit of it, and uh, when I was going to go bring him lunch one day. Um, He was like, oh, babe, I'm sorry. We're going to have to reschedule. We we got some action. So I did wind up coming to see him the very next day, and they were still talking about how they – overhandled a guy who was just, he wasn't even, like, intentionally trying to trespass, but they went overboard and, like, they were still talking about it, like, you know, days later of how one had his knee in his back and another one, like, threw him down to the ground and so they were just reliving in the moment um, what had happened, but I just looked at it, all these guys at one point in time were just uber nerds that someone gave a gun and a little bit of power and up until that point, because they never really had to police anything, they had the opportunity to have power that they it acted upon it. And so I break it down to my son and I tell him the psychology behind it. And this is just, I was like, this is in fact, you know, this is mommy's um, theory that um, you know that you are powerful. You don't have to exert your power upon anyone. You're intellectually stimulated and powerful. I was like, not everybody knows that. You are sure within yourself as a young man growing into an adolescent, some people never had that opportunity to embrace power on different levels and they go above and beyond. So in humbling yourself, it doesn't demean who you are as an individual. It's just making room for someone else's ego.
1: How does Cordell react? How does Cordell react when you almost with every him just like this? Right, with every conversation <laughs> telling me that Santa Claus is not real. <laughs>
0: My son is completely um, immune to me now. <laughs> this has been our, our interaction since he was a kid because I didn't know what I was doing. I, I, I still, I'm not sure if I do. But it's working. When I was in um, st- uh, studying for med school, I would use him as my diagram in studying the different body parts and label with a non-toxic marker.
2: <laughs> this has been his life, his entire
0: life. Like, hey kid, come here, let's talk. Well, one
1: thing you write in the, in, in the book is that Deep in the book, like, let me remind you. Did I tell you I don't know what I'm doing?
0: I try to be as honest and transparent with him as possible. It, we, we still maintain a level of respect that I'm mommy. I'm not your friend. You're going to respect me. But um, it it doesn't uh, put me on this uber pedestal of like, I know all the answers because I don't. I'm figuring this out as I go. You're, we're trial and erroring this life thing together. And it gives me room to make mistakes as a parent.
2: Mom, did you know what you were doing? No, I didn't. <laughs> Wait I hold had, did you I know
0: had, that Mom didn't know what she was doing
2: <laughs> i had I had no idea what I was doing, even though I was a registered nurse. Yes, ma'am. when Todd was born, I called my mother <laughs> and asked her, "How do I fix this formula like you did? <laughs> you know <laughs> and, and that I, I I had to do do that because i didn't I did not know, and um. And I always prayed because I would always say, Lord, help me. <sighs> yeah, I would always say, Help me raise my son because I can't do it by myself. <laughs> and uh, I always pray until this day. You know, I always pray. <laughs> Mothers should, all oh, parents should always pray the 91st Psalms and the 23rd Psalms over their children. Whenever they step outside, pray for protection because you can't do it by yourself. It takes a village. Yes. Yes, it does. And uh, that's how I made it through. Sometimes I look back and say... I don't know how I did this, (laughs) you know. Did you have a lot of help within the community in assisting you? me. It was me, just me, and um, a younger sister of mine, and and also a cousin of mine that, uh, I mean, uh, Todd's godparents. They were very helpful, you know, in uh, in helping me to raise him because I loved my parents, but I did not want to. (laughs) 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 Because they would baby him and and they would not uh, (laughs) they, they would baby him too much you know he doesn't have a father so you know let him have this let him do this let him do that so i i chose his godparents because they were both uh educators and the opposite. <laughs> yeah. They were lovely. And they were they they were they and were good. Parents. They yeah, gave you that Stern. balance that every yeah. child needs. Because I would when I was in grad school, you said you asked your kids some I, I would take him to class sometime with me. And he would sit in, in uh class and take better notes than I did. I, I said, this is <laughs> oh, nice to me. <laughs> this you is did. nice to me. Remember you used to go with me and you sit in the back and you have your little pad and pencil, your little pad and paper, sitting back there and I would read your notes after you know, after we finished and I said, Dad, his notes are better than mine. <laughs> you know? And uh and yeah, I um uh, only with God. That that's that's how I did it. And that's
1: the thing that is another one of those parallels between my mom and you Tai, is not only um, were you are you single moms raising black sons? But throughout your book, you, like God is your co-pilot. Right. Yes, you don't right. know what you're doing, but you are constantly your God is there. Another parallel is that you you were saying, Ty. Um, well, you like to travel, and my mom talked about her travels. When I was listening but to we were, travels,
0: I was getting excited. I was like, "Yes, Mama!" <laughs>
1: <laughs> but when when I was Cordell's age. Um, and my mom was was your age. My mom would take me on trips. One of my earliest memories is when she took we went to Jamaica. Oh, together. yeah. Went to Montego Bay. <laughs> nice. And Barbra Streisand's um, Songbird was the big song that my mom played <laughs> over and over and over again. Why was it my mom said it was important for me to see that there is a world out there is that the reason why well actually why don't you talk about uh how you and cordell started traveling together
0: we started traveling because cordell is um he is just like me but i think he's an introverted version of me but we're very similar and we like exploration and we love adventures and so he came home one day excited elated it was like mommy guess what i learned today and i was like what kid and he's like Did you know there's 50 states? (laughs) I was like, no, get out of here. Stop playing. He's like, yes, and we're going to go to all of them. I was like, no, stop playing. (laughs) I was like, baby, that's expensive. And he reached in his pocket and he was like, I have two dollars. (laughs)
2: oh cute and I was like
0: he's like how far can this get us and I was like not far boo but this is a start his very um, first trip we went to New York he's in love with New York even though when I first took him there he complained the entire time about how big the buildings were and the people were loud I'm like have you met your mama but (laughs) Uh, he wrote his very first book report on his favorite trip was to New York. And so we started traveling and I required of him every state that we go to. He has to write me a book report. And um, I for a very long time started. I was staying away from the southern states because of, uh, you know, we want to protect our children. But the best way you can protect them is armoring them with knowledge. And um, I, we we I wanted to explain blows him to different things you know in life you live to the level of your exposures and the things that you desire and you want and you crave is because of what you believe and conceive as possible but it was different when I actually did start taking him to the south and for him uh-huh. to see my um, son loves video games and so I'd be like I call him Poppy. I'm like Poppy, put your video game down I need you to look tell me what do you see and at first what he would describe was just a superficial like you know I'd see buildings and he would see people and I'm like no what else do you see and then so he started noticing like they didn't have grass. They didn't have trees. The kids were running around. They didn't have shoes or their shirts had holes in them. It's different for me to tell you how blessed you are versus for you to see on your own how blessed you are.
1: There was something that happened and I can't remember which state it was. It happened in if it was Indiana or the, the, the convenience store where the... Waco, per- Texas. In Texas, oh, Texas. In Texas. Talk about what happened.
0: Um, my, I've been teaching my son the value of a dollar and uh so you know I've, I've been giving him money and then when he would earn money i would have him put part of it into his savings and then i'd allow him to spend the rest of it and he you know was trying to spend it wisely and so at the moment at the moment he was into pr- uh, pringles and so we go going we went into the convenience store the gas station looking he wanted pringles i needed gas and um i'm that mom that like counts her pennies and so i'm like Nah, there's a cheaper gas station down the street. And um, this was before we had apps that would tell us where the cheap gas stations were. So I had already pushed the limits of, you know, gas. And we oh, that's go why in. you were
1: running on fumes. Yeah, you fumes ride and in faith. Fumes, <laughs> fumes and faith is what you write.
0: And we got into the, the station and, you know, my son walking around, he finally, you know, found some Pringles. And he comes up to the counter and I seen the racism on this man's face as soon as I walked in the door. And I'm like. Lord, if I could just get some gas, that'd be great. And then by the time I got to the counter, I'm like, if I could just get out of here alive, that'd be great. We walked in, and um, the guy, he didn't even really, he didn't look up at me, he didn't acknowledge me. And I was like, you know, can I get, I forgot what pump it was, um, you know, 10 on pump 6, I I guess, I think it was. And um, the guy didn't even look up from his paper. He turned his paper across his leg over to the other leg. And when he did, it exposed a sawed-off shotgun that was right next to him. He said, we don't take too well to your kind around these parts. You better get on. And this was within the past five, six years. Um, And uh, my son walked up to the counter around the same time and he put his Pringles on the counter so proudly and his money on the counter so proudly. And the man took his hand and swatted at both of them. He said, I told you to get on, take your monkey and get. That was the first time I actually ever even heard somebody referred to as a brown child as a monkey you know transcending with what happened recently with uh H&M
1: right with the hood the yeah, hoodie. yeah.
0: <clears throat> that was the first i was like people actually use that word and you know i've
1: and that was when you had the conversation because because cordell didn't quite understand why he had to leave his pringles there why you ran out of there he so he was fast. so proud
0: that he prou- he had the pringles and he had his money i thought money would give me what i wanted
1: and what did you tell
0: him i said um I explained to him uh, racism, and I said, unfortunately, because of the color of our skin, and they don't welcome us in this city, in this area. Uh, they also don't welcome our money either. And it's better for us to be safe versus, you know, we can find what you want in another place. And all he said was, "Oh,
2: That was that,
1: Mom?" I mean, you you grew up in the Jim Crow South and came north after after nursing school. In all those years, to your mind, have things, well, obviously things have changed, but generally speaking, have things gotten better? And I'm talking about in I, terms of race.
2: Race, I, I really don't know because I left when I went, went to nursing school and I didn't go back, you know, only to visit my parents. But when I was growing up down there, <clears throat> it it was as if black people knew their place. Wow. And um because the which black people south was this? It was in North Carolina, Severin, okay. which is um northern North Carolina, northeast of North Carolina, three miles from the Virginia from the Virginia border. Uh uh was Severin, pillinton Conway, Northampton County, you know, in, in that area. But there really wasn't any Outward, um, outward racism. Yeah, outward racism.
0: It was more covert, and I like, got understanding. A yeah, yeah, elephant, w- in the understanding. City.
2: yeah, yeah. It was understanding. Yeah, yeah. And and uh, because everyone got along really well, uh, the children played together. No matter, but the color, everything. Every, yeah, everything was separated though. There was the white church, the black church, the white street, the colored street, wow. <laughs> and
1: the colored street was what.
2: It, it was where we lived.
1: But it was a dirt road. It was
2: a dirt road. It was dirt. And and the white street, of course, was paved. Yes. The black school, the white school. The white bus, the black bus. You know, and it it was like that. And so it was easier nobody, for you to,
0: air quotes, stay in your
2: place because yeah, your place was yeah, defined but, of where
0: you belong. Yeah,
2: and, and no one tried to cross. But, you know, the kids played together. You know, because I I feel racism and hatred is learned. It is learned and it is taught. And when little kids, they don't see it, they play. But, you know, as they grow older, then it does change. Yeah, it does change.
1: Well, you know, Ty, you write in your book um, sort of about this on page 55. (laughs) <laughs> Where I mean, so you take you take a, a, a um, sort of there's a twist on your view of the changes, the improvements, the the um, the way things have gotten better. But you write, we have lost complete control in us fighting to be equal. We gave our control of our schools, our churches, our stores, our markets, sold our souls to it at the, their tables and drink. I'm sorry to eat at their tables and drink from their fountains talk about that because it, it it sounds like yeah there are these changes we we shall overcome but we have we
0: and then but at what cost um when i was in cordell was with me we went to arkansas and in Arkansas, I could not wait to get back home. I am an entrepreneur at heart. I, before I even knew what entrepreneurism was, um, I have always wanted to build and I crave to, you know, make things better, being a healer and a massage therapist. And when we were in Arkansas, all I, I was looking around and I'm like, hey, black people, you do know that we's free now, right? <laughs> and this is, you know, relevant of... Um, 2012 and 13 Me feeling the need To lean over And let black people Know that it's okay uh, Yeah You don't always have to Ask for permission And you ain't gotta go Run and talk to mass But um, I feel that way You know If you stop and looked at it And I talk about this In the book Um the boom of Black Wall Street and it was a point in time where we had everything because we had no other choice. We wanted, we need, not just wanted hospitals, but we needed hospitals. We needed um, to eat. We needed places to shop and if we weren't allowed to go to theirs and we weren't content with what they were divvying out to us, we created our own. You know, it wasn't so far begone in, in Africa when we were kings and queens. No, during the boom of the Black Wall Street, we had all of our own out of necessity and we were booming the black dollar would circulate within the community um, over a hundred times would take up to a year before it would leave now it leaves within 15 minutes we so like if an exchange of everything comes at a cost and we don't always stop to look at that price tag like we fought for but what do we give up along with in the process to get what we thought we wanted and is that um, now i feel like we're fighting to get that back
1: well, I Mom, mean, you mm-hmm. you've lived both. You you lived through Jim Crow South, you, you, and uh, thankfully, you are still alive. <laughs> um, what's your view of of where we are?
2: I think it, it seems as if when I was growing up, it it was we were hungry for change. I think we were hungry for change, and it seems as if okay, we did the marching and all of that. And it seems as if we got to a point where it seems as if, okay, that that's okay. Right. I don't think we really started teaching our children to fight for, for what is right. Uh, and it, it's as if if you lived in the black community and they came and put Obama Street. you know it seems as if, oh wow, that's great. We live on Obama Street, but the street is messed up, uh, garbage everywhere and it and to me it, it seems as if this should not be enough. you know, we should have uh, paved streets, clean streets. We're okay with
0: being a piece. Yeah,
2: yeah, okay, but we have to teach our children, To fight like they fought when I was a child when I I was growing up even though I did not do any marching because when we was in nursing school we were forbidden to go to because (laughs) I was in school when they were sitting in Mm -hmm. and uh, we weren't allowed to go so that's the only reason that I wasn't you know someplace sitting in also and but we were hungry back then we fought back then for, for our rights but It doesn't seem as if it was carried over to our children to keep fighting.
0: Something happened between your generation and mine.
2: Yeah, something happened.
0: (laughs) And I I would love to use this book to find the the holes within the black community and help fill them to fill that gap because something did happen. I don't know if we got just enough that we're like, okay, this is good enough. Yeah. Or if certain things just didn't um, carry over into other generations. But you're right, we're not. Mm-hmm. Not as a conglomerate. Well, Ty,
1: you, you write that this current generation is, quote, a bunch of grown ass babies. They
0: are, That's and true. I blame. I agree. I wouldn't blame your generation, I blame my parents' generation. And over coddling our children and yeah. taking away, there's a lesson in the no. And I think because they went N-O. so, yeah, the lesson in the no. And that uh, they gave us so much because they went without. That it wind up crippling us yeah, in our cognitive development. And a lot of children aren't able to provide for themselves by the time they're 18 because their parents didn't tell them no enough. And like y'all are just whiny babes. And then like we have more technology now than you did. Yeah, Why are we further behind and struggling? Why are you unable to do certain things when you're walking around with a brain in your pocket? Allow it to help you be great. If you want to know something, look it up. We take for granted the things that you don't have to work for. It's just there Mm -hmm. at your convenience and disposal whenever you want to. It depreciates your appreciation. It depreciates Mm your... Um, desire And crave for hard work So when you have to do hard work It's so foreign
2: to you You don't know what that mm-hmm. is anymore <laughs> so Like my, my, my great nieces They um, I had to show my 12 year old How to wash dishes
0: My brother just learned How to cut grass
2: <laughs> and, <laughs> and, and, and Because they are not being taught and, How and old I, are they? Uh, one is 12 and the other one is 8
0: my brother, I think, it's
2: twenty-four. And to sweep a floor, she didn't know how to hold the broom. I said, "Come on, girl!" And I stood there over her. You wash it this way, uh, uh, uh. Change that rag. Squeeze it out. You do it this way. Well, why? They're used I to dishwashers. Yeah. Not
0: used to filling up a sink with suds and yeah. making it work for all the dishes.
2: Yeah, and and, and I think they should. The two little girls, and they should be taught because when Todd was young. I taught him to wash his clothes. He was washing his own clothes at thirteen. I, I was I was not going to coddle yes, him, ma'am. and he was going to learn how to do everything. That I, I told him when you go to college, there's no woman going to be there taking care of you. We wait too As long
0: a, to yeah before you start introducing things in our society. Yeah, and then they get to college and you're like mm-hmm. well, yeah wait. because when
2: he was thirteen, he was washing and ironing his own clothes. And I would buy food like, you know, the chicken wings and the chicken legs where he could cook for himself. You know, if I wasn't home from work, he learned learned to do that. He cleaned his room. If he wanted some money, he would have to clean the house, the whole house. I do that. I have extra uh, chores. You have your your regular chores and then you got the extra ones that earn money. you, you, You have to clean. And I would not let him just do what he wants. See,
1: Ty, Ty, I don't know if you read this part in, in Ty's book, but she goes through pages of all of Cordell's chores. And I was like, oh my God, uh, oh this yeah, is me. I did see that. She taught him how to cook. She taught him how to iron. She taught him how to do the laundry. She taught him how to do everything yeah. so that he's self-sufficient.
0: I'm trying to find that balance of, you know, him being self-sufficient and being responsible, but also him still being allowed to be a kid. And so there's days where, you know, I'm like, did you do your chores? And he's like, yes. And I look up. And um, we'll go through them. And then, you know, I'll let him sit and, you know, ride his skateboard all day or play video games. But only after because that's real life. Real life is you can play on Instagram as long as you want after your responsibilities are taken care of. You can ride your skateboard as long as you want, as long as your chores are done. You do what I say first and then you can do what you want, not the other way around. So, yeah, he has like a crap ton of like, you know, stuff to do. And
2: then you can (laughs) go play. Because when we would go to the to the mall. I would, t- I would, t- I guess, I don't know if I was a mean mom or what, but I would, I would, I would tell him, tell him telling the story. I'll tell you, <laughs> I would tell him, okay, we're going to the mall. I'm not going to tours or us. I'm not going to, Oh, you got that disclaimer store. too. And I, if you want something, you can go to the bookstore mm-hmm. and buy anything you want out of the bookstore. That's all I would buy. when would go to the mall. I would buy books.
1: One thing that your son, uh, Cordell, always lost.
2: That lunchbox. (laughs) Yeah, the lunchbox. (laughs) Little baby Jesus.
1: That lunchbox is central to this book. Because it is how you teach him responsibility, but also how you teach him about the world, because they're going to be, as you've said earlier, the world is going to see you a different way. And they're not going to understand like you know, the wh- conversation
0: mom had with you and Skip.
1: Right. Right. This lunchbox. Why was this lunchbox such a problem?
0: Um, I don't know. And, and I don't want to put it towards a label of my son having ADHD. I mean, he may. I've never gotten him tested. But the lunchbox was a problem because it was a, a indicator of something greater. It's. Um, it gave me pause that you have something you do every single day that you've been doing every single day. You're in school nine months out of the year. How is this not a part ingrained into your psyche of I need, uh, like you, you don't have any kids, you don't have any bills, you don't have any other responsibilities. So how has you have, um, and before this, before he had a cell phone, so you have a lunchbox, you have your agenda book and you have your book bag, your coat. Um, how do you keep, you only have four things. Like, how are you still losing them? It has to become a habit to pay attention to your own. You look for your own person. You check out for everything that's around you and you're supposed to have with you on your person. You keep losing parts of your person is a problem because you're also not paying attention to other things around you. If you're not paying attention to your person, you're not paying attention to the people who are in your surroundings and your environment either. That is an even bigger problem.
1: And you, you, okay, I'm just going to put it out there. You threatened him. You come home without that lunchbox. You're getting a whooping. You're getting a spanking. And oh,
0: honest ape. Forgot and I and then he reminded me about the spanking and I'm like, no, I wouldn't do this. Why you? He was like, mommy, man, does that mean that I'm gonna get a spanking that you promised me? And I'm like, why'd you word it like that? Because now you have to have to do it. Yeah,
1: but you, but but spanking. I want you both. Like I know you are a full proponent spanking. Beat that ass, make them learn. <laughs> they gotta learn.
0: Yes, and no. I believe in Spare the Rod and Spoil the Child, but I am also a product of spankings, and spankings to me, you, you got to ascertain your child. Because for me, spankings was like, all right, uh, because I'm the ask for forgiveness instead of permission type of person. I've been like this my entire life. So what spankings taught me is, how can I do this again but better and not get caught? <laughs> That's what spankings did for me, but my child doesn't like them. So I am a spare the, ro- spare the rod, spoil the child. The rod doesn't always necessarily have to be a spanking. Whatever it is that whips them is what you should use. And spankings, I mean, I guess they work for my kid. But um, he doesn't like to know that he's disappointed me. He doesn't like to have his skateboard taken away. He doesn't like to have his video games taken away. Those are a bit more effective. Like time. Oh, and exercises. My <laughs> yeah. son just- because he, he to, hates it. Yeah. So instead, I'm like, wait, these exercises are more effective than a spanking? Like, go up and run up and down the stairs until I say stop. <laughs> go do wall squats <laughs> until I say stop. That's better than the spanking.
1: Well, and, Mom, I, uh, I, I've been spanked. Mom's, yes. Mom spanked me.
2: Yes, I did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Why?
2: Then It was when you did something that I told you not to do because you sometimes you would think oh she didn't mean that oh i can do that she won't know <laughs> <laughs> but she did mean it and she did know so that that that's when you got your spankings hmm
1: yeah Great. Thanks, Mom.
2: <laughs> well, you you know, see what man you became? Yes, yes. She didn't spoil the child. That's right. Well, that, that, is, that is true. But, you know,
1: OK, so Stacey Patton wrote this op-ed piece in The New York Times almost a year ago. It was a year ago in March where she writes, this is on spanking. The violence that black children experience from trigger-happy cops in the streets of cities like Baltimore and Chicago, in schools and at home, is all interconnected. It's all strange and bitter fruit from the same tree. I am asking that black parents stop assisting in the devaluation of our children. Love your reaction to that. Mom's got that look she
0: on her. She probably
2: doesn't have any children. Does she have children? Don't
0: don't you just love
2: when people give advice yeah. on children? They ain't got children. Yeah, because they that's give just, it spanking advice. is a
0: knee jerk reaction. <laughs> Whether no matter how much you love your child, spanking is a knee jerk reaction when they do something like I just told you not to. Dot dot dots. Um, it. But when you look at the the, the bigger picture of that, I, there needs to be some reprimanding, but that reprimanding has to be to the level of the child. So spankings may or may not work. But to say it not at all, y'all creating these punk kids. Those like, you know, little punk babies that grown up babies that I'm talking about that don't know what hardship feels like. They don't know what pain feels like because no one ever told them loved them enough to tell them no. Or love them enough to, to have the hard conversations or the, the, the tough punishments and the spankings, whatever it is that your child needs to be shooken back onto the right path, you need to do that. But it starts with you knowing your child.
2: Yeah, and, and also, uh, a lot of these kids are growing up looking for mom. Oh, they are. They that's are like a looking, whole sermon and another conversation <laughs> yeah, in itself. They, they are looking for mom. They're going to look for this woman that. It's gonna take care you of You better them. say it again Mom. And they're gonna look for this man that they got that that's gonna take be daddy care of them. Yeah that's gonna be daddy for them. And they don't feel that they have to do anything as long as they are this man and can function.
0: Social media perpetuates they, that. Yeah and, they and think the, that's all the videos they need that to we do. see in the memes and having sponsors and if I'm cute enough and I have these physical attributes then yes. I don't have to dot dot dot.
2: Yeah. That ain't they think l- it's reality, reality. Uh, as the kids can say, "Oh, he's so he's fine," you know, and that's all he is fine. But even that a job that lifestyle with comes mom, with, you know. He's probably getting food stamps <laughs> from, from lying <laughs> that something was wrong with him, some disability, and he. But he's fine, you know, and, and that's who that's you who they would, to look past they the would go for. You have because cuteness failing as Judge Judah said ignorance lasts forever, <laughs> <laughs> you know. Mama ain't so. quoting Judge Judy. <laughs> yeah. Judge Judith said.
0: The, the radio did, she try to keep together. <laughs> um, absolutely. Well, like, booties drop, boobies drop. You ain't going to be this the same cuteness. You have to have some mm-hmm. substance to you. You know, 10 years later, do I still like you? Screw love. I got to like Ten. you. <laughs> <laughs> you better look at five
2: or two. You know. Do I still like you? You know, because they, they have to learn to if 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 their partners, whomever they are choosing, yeah. don't if they, they don't come with all bells and whistles, you know, all as dotted and T's crossed job, house, car. Don't be riding no man around. You know, <laughs> he has to have his own car. They should look for that. But all they do now is look. She's fine. She got a job.
0: I think around 30, 35 that starts to change. But I will say uh, in between your generation and my generation, um, and I have no problem with saying this out loud, I think the strength of a woman has changed. And what she allows into her presence is an emanation of what it is she knows she deserves and she's worth. And over time, um, because we may desire to be with someone, we lower the standards of what it is we allow ourselves to deal with. Because, you know, there's certain things that um, I-, I think the problem and the solution starts with the woman. What you allow is what is going to continue and to persist. So if, you know, she has it all together and she has her stuff and, you know, she's looking for a man to complete her instead of so compliment her. You know, you wind up feeding into these grown babies instead of holding them accountable to want, desire and provide for more.
1: You know, when um, there's something you talk about, Ty, about we always ask kids, what do they want to be when they grow up?
0: Wrong question. And
1: you, yeah, you have a problem with that. You think that's the wrong question. What is the right question?
0: What do you want to create when you grow up? What do you want to own when you grow up? You start setting the foundational stones instead of speaking death into your children's future and letting them know that this glass ceiling is as high as you can go of who do you want to work for because when you work for someone else, you allow them to dictate how much you're worth and how much you're worth per hour versus you write. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just that... They should be able to make their own decisions. (laughs) They should be able to make their own decisions of this is what I want versus you thinking that's all that you believe um, is available. (laughs) <laughs> versus you thinking that's all that's available is that, all right, I'm going to grow up. And we talked about that moment of arrival and how it's changed. The new moment of arrival is I have a, a job and I'm gainfully employed. Therefore, I have arrived. No, 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 baby girl. No, 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 young king. More exists and it's available to you. Dream bigger, aim higher, dig deeper. But you diminish that ability for them to conceptualize that when you say, what do you want to be when you grow up? Wrong question. We used to say, or my parents would say, um, you know, it's your job to go to school to get good grades to get a good job, not create.
2: Because Todd, when Todd was nine, nine years old, he he that was the first time you saw Brian Gumble mm-hmm. on TV. I think that was when Brian Gumble was was then just the, got to the Today Show. Yeah, yeah. he just got to the a little Day later, show. a little later than and, that. And um, still. and because he would write all the time write cute little stories. I don't know what happened to him. I moved so and lost all of them. Yeah, since he was, he was a kid. And um, he was saying, Mom, I'm, I'm going to do that. I said, going to do what? I'm going to be like Brian Gumble." Mm, I he said, was you sure?" to it. Yeah, I said, you sure you want to do that? Don't you want to go to med school or uh, law school? No, no, I want to do that. I said, okay, if that's what you want to do, that's what we will work on. So um, I uh, tried to introduce him to everything that what he wanted to do, I I would try to push him toward people that knew. And I told him to always talk to people that's an expert in the field that he wanted to go to. And don't be asking his friends about something that he wants (laughs) to do and they have no idea what they're talking about. You know, talk to the people that know. The best Uh, thing
1: the best thing my mom did was never to tell me you can't do that. And I always tell I always tell the young people that um, the the thing that was most helpful when I was growing up is to realizing that I'm the only person in my family who's a journalist, only person in my family who was crazy enough to actually say, I want to do that And the closest I came to having anybody in my family in television is my uncle McKinley, who was an electrician at 30 Rock for 41 years. And the only thing he did was the most important thing he did, which was to let me in the building after my interview for Carlton in New York, just to come and say hi. And that set off a chain reaction where I met a producer on nightly news who told me about the, the program person at that time. I was 16, 16, 16 years old. So being, in I tell people I'm in, I'm from a family that has no journalists in it. And yet here I am. And it's because I didn't have anyone tell me you can't do that. Ty, you write on page one forty nine, uh, as part of a, a, a series of things, but this line jumped out at me that, um, raise a conscious black boy in a country that hates him?
0: Um, I don't believe that the overall agenda for the country is in favor of my son. Um, I believe he will be ostracized based upon our current delvings. Um, I believe he'll be ostracized because of the color of his skin um, because, uh, and, and, I believe in living the cliches of life. There's so many of them, but one of is, um, that people want to see you doing well, but not better than them. Um, and that was displayed with the black wall street, you know, and the burning down of we were doing well and then we started doing better. <clears throat> I see it happening again. And, um, I don't want to lie to him and, uh, sh- overshadow the issues that may be. Um, I want him to know the world that you're walking into may not necessarily have your best interest at heart. So instead of you walking out blindly, you walked out with knowledge, um, knowing that it's not just the content of your character that's being judged here, that you may not be awarded opportunities because you're black, that you may be denied, um, progression because you are melanated. And, um... (laughs) <laughs> with the forty five in office, um, that stigma is perpetuated.
1: Mom, did you when I was uh, growing up, did you feel that you were raising you were raising a black boy in a country that
2: hates him? No, I, I didn't feel that way. I felt that even though your skin colour seemed to be a problem, but don't let that stop you, um you can be whatever you want to be, even 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 if the world hates you. You don't have to walk around with hate in you. If you have the hate, hating back, you're not going to go any place. You're going to have to just say, okay, maybe maybe the world hates me, but I'm. It's still not going to keep me from doing what I want to do. It's easier to I embrace
0: think. something when you know it exists. Yeah, it's easier you know to come back yeah. uh, when you know it's happening. And mm-hmm. I still preach to him to uh, live in love and light. Yeah. Um, no matter what people do, you don't have to reciprocate. But it's easier to know what you're dealing with and how mm-hmm. to handle a situation when you're aware of what, how it's happening or what's happening and how it looks. You know, you before we had the streets labeled. Our streets aren't labeled anymore. But you could still be walking down the street that they don't want you on. Mm -hmm. So being able to
2: acknowledge those signs. Yeah, because the devil, you know, is better than the devil you don't know. Yes, (laughs) ma'am. You know, so uh, you uh, you know, this is happening. So you know how how to deal with it. But you don't have to become what you are dealing with. You know, just keep on doing what you're doing, you know.
1: So earlier in the conversation, you both you both <coughs> admitted that you had no idea what you're doing. You, <laughs> you still say you don't have you have no idea what you're doing in terms of, of raising your son. Mom, you you heartily agree that you had no idea what you were doing now. I'm wondering, given what you know now, what advice would you give to black moms, black parents raising their kids that you know now and understand now that you wish you had known?
0: I, um, it's, I'll let you go first. I'll, I'll order my thoughts.
2: My thing is, it's already just, it's all right to say no, you're not going to get it. It's all right to make them work. Don't just hand over money. If they want an allowance, you got to do something for it because uh, parents shouldn't just hand over money. Don't be giving eight-year-old kids iPhones. <laughs> and and, um, and you, ha- you have to talk to your children. Don't become their friend. Be their parent. Let them know you are the parent. Demand respect. And um, make them respect other people. And just don't, um, just teach them manners. (laughs) Kids today do not have manners. Oh, my goodness. Uh, Teach them to treat people right because what you do to someone else that's not right is really going to come back on you. You know, it's it's really going to come back. And, um, yeah, parents need to talk to their kids. They need to pray for their kids. They need to, uh, yeah, and pray with them and know where they are at all times,
0: if you can. We don't always just only pass on those core values. Sometimes we forget some of the core values, but we also pass on a lot of our fears and maybe even pain that we haven't healed from. This book is intended to bring out a lot of things that maybe the parents and the adults are dealing with, so we don't pass on those flaws and fears to our children. In regards to the question, what would I pass on? The reason why I openly and um, welcomingly uh, state that I was... Uh, unsure of what I was doing. It's very hard to pour from an empty cup And it's very hard for you, for God to pour into a full cup. So I emptied myself and I want it to be poured into from people around me, as you instructed him to do. You find people who are where you want to be. So I I emptied myself and acknowledging that I'm not exactly sure what I'm doing. But I from that starting point, I can ask the right questions of how can I do better? I would encourage parents to humble themselves, empty yourself and allow people around you that you look up to to pour back into you
1: ty Haw, author of Lunchbox Chronicles: Raising a Conscious Black Boy in America, you can see excerpts of it at thelunchboxchronicles.com And Margaret Capehart, my mom, thanks for being here.
2: Thank you for having Welcome. us. Thanks for inviting me. <laughs> uh,
1: yeah. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. Hi, I'm Mike Rosenwald, a reporter here at The Washington Post. I'm hosting a new daily podcast called Retropod. It's a show about the past rediscovered. Every weekday morning, we'll explore some of history's most dramatic moments. I'll introduce you to colorful characters from our past, Forgotten heroes, overlooked villains, dreamers, explorers, world changers. Check it out on your Amazon Echo, Google Home, or your favorite podcast player. For instructions on how to listen, visit WashingtonPost.com slash
2: Retropod. The Washington Washington Post.
0: Post.
1: Hi, I'm Jimmy Kimmel, and I'm here with Jeff Edgers. going to do his podcast, Edge of Fame. It's a collaboration between WBUR and The Washington Post. I've always wanted to be involved in a collaboration between WBUR and The Washington Post ever since I was a baby. Edge of Fame, before, behind, and beyond the spotlight. Subscribe to Edge of Fame wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by ZipRecruiter, offering technology to help you find candidates that match your job qualifications.